Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? Today on the show, we have Sarah Ness. And so Sarah is the founder of something called Authentic Revolution. And Authentic Revolution is one of the most prominent uh, providers and resources for a practice called Authentic Relating. And if you have never heard of Authentic Relating, you may have heard of another similar social technology called Circling. Um, But Authentic Relating is this incredible practice that has a lot of similarities to Gestalt, the the practice that I use to facilitate our men's groups. Um, But Authentic Relating is this practice that enables groups of people to come together and really just be themselves. And so there are these groups that exist all over the world, over 500 around the world. And Sarah's contributed to the founding of many of them. She's reached thousands and thousands of people in these ongoing weeks. And the way you can imagine a circling group or authentic uh, authentic relating group is a group of usually strangers coming together and a container being set that allows people to become really present with however they're feeling that liberates people to share authentically about their experience. And not only does this exist in kind of the social context of these types of groups, she's also brought this into really high-performing corporate context around the world as well of creating these containers at work that give people the freedom and power to talk about so often the things that they are not talking about. And the reason this is so powerful is so many people talk about the importance of community, uh, the importance of connection and how that's going away. But so often I think people fall flat with some of the actual tools that they offer people to do that, to create meaningful connection. And as I've always talked about on this podcast and in so much of my work, I think that communication and those skills are the most foundational piece that we need to master to create meaningful connection in our lives. And authentic relating and circling are two of the most potent social technologies that are out there. Um, Anyone, whether you are leading a company, whether you are leading a community, can create these types of experiences these types of containers that liberate people to share all of themselves. And when you can do that, uh, you can really be a catalyst for meaningful connection wherever you are. Um, so Sarah's been studying this for you know over 10 years, I believe, and she's got incredible anecdotes and research about how these things work when implemented into different types of communities and corporate contexts. But I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, she is really walking the walk and has created a system that shows other people how to do this, this idea of servant leadership, of really not making it about her, but how do they train people who can then bring this into you know, their own community, their own school, their own church organization. And so if you are passionate about community, you care about communication, uh, these types of social technologies are one of the most important things we can educate about ourselves about to, to really do that. So without further ado, here is Sarah Ness. And also, I highly recommend uh, Google Authentic Relating or Circling in your town. Go and check out a group 
uh, they can be weird, they can be fun, they can be intense, they can be funny, uh, but it's an experience that I'd recommend everyone try out because uh, regardless of what happens, it will give you a chance to experience yourself differently and uh, be seen and give that gift to other people. So here is Sarah Ness. Enjoy. All right, we're coming in hot from is Crown Heights, Prospect Heights, somewhere in between. I just call it kind of Narnia of Brooklyn-ish. Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> but I am so excited to have uh, Sarah Ness, the founder of Authentic Revolution, sitting across from me. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hi. How are you doing this morning? Um, pretty good. It was my first night in New York last night, so I stayed out a little bit too late. And you went to House of Yes, which is the coolest spot in all of New York City if you're going to go out and have a crazy night, right? I did not know that. Um but yes, I ended up painting on a lot of people and dancing on a lot of things. It was great. So for any of you who ever make it to New York, whether you live in New York, so House of Yes is this incredible, I would say Burning Man inspired nightclub that is like one of the last bastions of weird in New York City. So you go there and you have like hula hoops hanging from the ceiling and you've got people in drag and crazy music and people in costumes. And it's, so it's an incredible place and experience that you should definitely have if you ever make it here. It's kind of a normal day in Austin, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're, just, we're, we're just trying to keep up, you know, <laughs> kind of keep it kind of weird here. So, um, so Sarah, one of the ways that I always like to start these conversations is just by asking guests, how do you answer the question, what do you do? Because you are involved in a lot of very, very cool things. But when someone asks you that question, how do you tend to answer? I kind of stumble around for a while and try to think about what I'm going to say. <laughs> then I usually say something like I teach human connection and um, social interaction. And, you know, it, I think a lot of people talk about human connection and they throw that word around. And one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you here is because I think that you are an example of someone who is really giving people the tools and techniques and spaces in a really practical way where meaningful connection is achieved. And so if you were to articulate kind of what your big ideas that you want to talk about today, how would you phrase that? Oh, um, I think there's a couple things. One is there are, um, not rules, but there are practices for communication. Mm-hmm. that can be taught, which is something that I just never knew about growing up. And I'll tell you a, a story in a bit about going back to my 10-year high school reunion this last weekend, yeah. um, having learned some of those. So like communication can be can be learned and not in a boring way. Um, that uh, loneliness and disconnection aren't inherent to being human. Um, we can build communities and learn tools that allow us to connect with anyone and build spaces that allow for connection. Um, I think there's a certain like displacement in a lot of people right now and it's considered just kind of normal and that doesn't have to be. Mm. Um, in some ways it is. That I don't think it's ever possible that we're going to get all parts of us met at all times. Um, but that particular feeling of disconnection that I experience in a lot of people doesn't, it's it's not just like a natural feature of the human condition. Um I- and one of the ways that you yeah. phrase it to me even before is the idea of kind of using these social technologies, which is a term mm-hmm. that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with. So what do you mean by that? <laughs> that term actually got uh, used for me. I was I was working with a, um, 
a middle school class and the teacher of the class introduced me by going up to the board and saying, you know, we have these physical technologies like, you know, computers and the internet and such. And we have these um, kind of political technologies and, you know, uh, like the government. And then we have social technologies like authentic relating. And I was like, that's an amazing way to put it. Yeah. Um, so social technologies are, are in the same way that I think computers can mediate what information we see and get across. Social technologies mediate how we interact with each other. So um, I'm trying to think of a good example for this, but you know, a question is a social technology. Mm. It's one mode that you can go into in conversation, you know, telling a story is a social technology. Um, setting a timer for an interaction, which not a lot of people do, but I love doing like, if you want to, you know, if you're like, Hey, I've got, you know, 10 minutes left on the phone with someone that you don't know how to get off the phone with after 10 minutes, set a timer. When the timer goes off, it's like, you know, an intermediary from the outside that helps say this is done. So I work a lot with, um, structures of interaction that create a lot more intimacy because they, they boundary the form of what we're in. Yeah. And I'd love to, today, the two that really kind of led me to you and your work would be authentic relating and circling. Uh And so if you were to introduce people to those social technologies, how would you describe what they are? Mm. So it's funny, the way I'd actually probably start by doing is just getting a sense of the person and like, you know, who they are and what matters to them um, and going from there. Because uh, everybody frames, everybody takes in information different ways. Yeah. But I would probably say, um, or you can also tell a story of how you discovered it, which might oh, yeah. even paint a clearer picture of what it is. How did you discover? Okay. Authentic relating. I found authentic relating. Um, I met somebody at the first ecstatic dance I ever went to, which is like a free form dance style that I, I fell in love with yeah. when I was studying intentional living communities. So I was in living in co-ops, studying how people live together, found dance, found authentic relating through somebody there. And I remember playing the first game that I played, which was a really simple one called the noticing game. You just go back and forth saying, being with you, I notice you know, I notice tension in my stomach. I notice my voice is kind of like deep and crackly, um, at least in my ears. I notice feeling kind of fuzzy headed. Um, and uh, actually, let's let's just play it for a second, I think, because it's different let's relationally. Show yeah. what it is, yeah. Um, so being with you, I notice uh, taking a deep breath. And then you say, hearing that, I notice in so yourself. hearing that, I notice your very strong eye contact. Hearing that, I feel, um, I notice amusement and uh, a little shyness. Hearing that, I notice your hair, which looks soft. Mm. Hearing that, I notice... Uh, you noticing me Hmm. and I feel like um, seen in both vulnerable in a sweet way. Hmm. And hearing that I see you steadily holding your microphone. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I like wanted to shake my hand around like, no, I'm not. (laughs) Um, So I played that game and 
something I noticed playing that with you even is like, it's almost like to pay that much attention, everything in my body slowed down. And it was a form of presence that I'd never really experienced before. I remember it feeling like time stopped, like nothing existed but the person that I was playing with. Mm. Um, and I was playing it with my, my partner at the time and this other couple. And I we like came out of, I think it was like a five minute game. Timer went off. We came out of it. And I look over and like the other couple's just in tears, like sobbing on the couch. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> like what weird fugue state did I just step into with this other person? I've never felt connection viscerally. Mm. Like I've never felt my body like that. And so um, the the games, what, what I realized after playing these for a while, and there's over 150 games, and some of them are body awareness like that, some of them are curiosity-based, some are empathy, um, some are kind of more like skill teaching, like how do you understand where someone else is coming from, and some are more experiences on the, of their own right, like the noticing game. Um, and I've started inventing some for different organizations and contexts as well. An example of one that you talk about is Hot Seat, mm -hmm. which I learned about earlier in some Gestalt trainings, but mm -hmm. just that we do it on our uh, Junto retreats, which is after our first dinner, we'll just invite in this practice where basically you'll have a guy who opts into the hot seat. So he initiates this kind of deep dive and then just popcorn. Everyone in the circle gets to ask whatever question they want. And you mm -hmm. just rapid fire, ask this person questions to go deeper wherever you want. And it's powerful. At least for me, it's like when you talk about this of it's, it's the process of setting a container of like new expectations and what is acceptable and expected in a social dynamic, right? right. Like when you set that container, it's like, okay, we're just doing this thing. So I don't need to think about all these other variables that so oftentimes get in the way of our thinking and mm -hmm. our ability to just communicate clearly and relate to another one. Yeah. Right? It's a beautiful way to say it. Cause I, th I, w I was thinking like in this conversation earlier about like, what is it that would make something as simple as saying, Hey, let's play a game all of a sudden completely changed the capacity for intimacy in an interaction. Like I was consulting someone yesterday on how to work with a group of medical professionals in Colombia, and I was like, play hot seat with them. Like yeah. they'll never have asked each other questions before until you tell them, ask one person questions for five minutes. Like it shouldn't create that much intimacy, but there's a experiment that was done um, with a group of kids on a playground hmm. where they, uh, they did two versions of the experiment. One was they had... Uh, in both of them, they had like a playground structure in the middle. In one experiment, they had a fence around the outside of the playground, like, you know, a good a good ways away from the playground structure in the middle. And the other one, there was no fence. What they found is in the situation with the fence, the kids would go all the way to the edges of the fence. Like they would they would fill the area within the fence. They wouldn't just stick close to the playground equipment. And in the second one, even though there was more space for them to go and, and spread around and play because there was no fence around the outside, the kids would cluster a lot closer to the playground equipment in mm. the middle. And I think that's like a good metaphor for human psychology. Like when we know the definitions of a space, we'll go all the way to its edges. Mm. Um, when we're told to show up at a costume party, we'll get way more creative totally. than if I we're just show, told to show up to a party. Yeah. So... And, and, you know, authentic relating games aren't the only way to do this. And I want to say, by the way, like, I didn't invent most of these games. Like, Hot Seat's been around since the 60s with the Morehouse community. Yeah. A lot of, I just kind of 
collated a lot of them, helped communities found around them and invent more and invented some of them. But I definitely want to like give credit what where is, it's due. What is the history of authentic relating? Like, where does it come from? Or like these games and these uh-huh. processes? Yeah. Yeah. So there was a, there was a group in the mid, uh, early to mid 1990s out in San Francisco, circling and, and authentic relating have, have slightly different, but like histories, parallel yeah. histories. Yeah. Um, so this group was, um, formed a community called soul to soul. Hmm. Uh, and they were relating with each other just in this really distinct way. <clears throat> they were part of a community that, uh, was born out of some landmark grads later led to one taste and some other organizations as well. So hmm. it was like kind of this hotbed of community and, um, and soul to soul, uh, they would just connect with each other in these deeper ways. And they started also doing dating events, some of their leaders, and they were using different games, the dating events, they were using hot seat, they were using, you know, I think curiosity games and sentence stems, which are like sentences to complete, like if you really knew me, you would know. I love using that one. Um, and they were pulling from different communities at the time and I think also inventing some. Uh, and that... Um, there was another leader out in San Francisco that had invented something that he was calling circling, which was like just a practice of seeing the essence of someone and naming it. Um, and, you know, being present with the person within a group and just like you know, naming what it's like to be with them in the moment and um, what the group's reactions to them are and letting them be more honest with their truth. So it's like this kind of laser beam of focused attention. Um, and uh, those two groups kind of got in combination with each other. Yeah. And um, one of, they ended up eventually starting to, to lead some trainings in circling or, or Guy Sangstock of the Circling Institute started leading the training circle, the circling trainings. Dekka Kunov of Soul to Soul, you know, came in and started helping as well and eventually developed his own method of circling. Um, they went out to the Integral Center in Boulder around 2011 and managed to circle Ken Wilber and um, some of the integral philosophers and get, get them to, um, to let them rent a building um, in Boulder. Uh, and that was mediated by Robert McNaughton, who was the director of, of some of the integral institutes programs at the time. And so they had, then they had like a home for circling and this was, was Decker and, um, and Brian, I believe, yeah, uh, guy was still out in San Francisco. Um, those companies split, and the Integral Center was formed, which is where I learned yeah. um, circling and found authentic relating. But one of their first programs is they did a program called Authentic Community Leadership, yeah, because there were different leaders that wanted to found community using circling and using the games, and they created this little manual for that training called the Authentic Relating Games Manual, and that's the manual that I found. Um, I met someone who'd been through one of the early programs in that space, the Authentic Man program. Um, And I fell head over heels in love because I was like, oh my God, this guy is so present and curious and appreciative and like never had anyone relate to me like this. I didn't realize those were skills that you could learn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Still super glad it happened. Don't think it would happen now, now that I like kind of understand more about means of communication. but he had a copy of the games manual and we started playing the games out of them. And then we started leading them for the Houston ecstatic dance community. Um, so the games and, and then 
as uh, I was on a year off at that point, traveling and studying different intentional living communities. And when I went back to school in Austin in the fall, back to college, um, I started doing the games up there with my co-op. And uh, so every week I would lead games in Austin, bus to Houston, lead games in Houston, go back to Austin, like was working on my thesis. It was a crazy year traveling to Boulder every month to train and circling because there was no authentic relating training at the time. Um, and people really loved it and it started growing. And when I would go to Boulder, I would meet other community leaders. And and in my community, we started inventing games for situations that didn't exist. It was yeah. like, you know, my co-facilitator and I were reading nonviolent communication and we were like, man, like we really want to teach this. We, we want this as a practice in our community, but there's no like, it's it's a format there's no like way to to just do it quickly and so we were like let's invent the empathy game mm. which is direct nonviolent communication it's like one person talks the other person reflects the first person clarifies adds reiterates and then the other person shares like what i think i get about you could you so one thing that i love to do on the show <laughs> is like when we throw out terms like that like there's two kind of like big bookmarks that i have mm -hmm. that will hopefully i'll circle back to the integral center and ken wilbur and but when you talk about nonviolent communication because i feel so much of that has been integrated into your practices mm -hmm. and to hear you talk about it so how would you describe what is nonviolent communication for people who aren't familiar with it okay i'll describe it i've mostly only gotten it from like reading the book and yeah it's totally like, but, but even, it's, even it's one of the I think it, I've gotten from reading the book, but I'll also say I think NVC is integrated probably into more conscious communication modalities now or spaces than anything else. Like it'll, yeah. um, so it's kind of like a through line that's managed to translate good communication to the mainstream. And it's a very simple um, process of stating an observation, a feeling, a need, and a request in communication. So instead of, if I'm in an argument with someone and I won't, I'm just like, I'm just like, fucking pissed at you for like never listening to me yeah the other person doesn't you know usually know what to do with that they're like i'm listening to you right now <laughs> or like totally. i do not objectively never listen to you and also stop blaming me for your feelings kind of thing yeah um but if you say you know observation like uh you know today i walked in and i told you that i was upset that like you hadn't done the dishes and you just walked off um, and I felt, you know, hurt and unheard and um, and angry. Um, even even unheard is a little bit like putting it on the other person, like you didn't hear me. So yeah. one of the goals of NBC is like to make the language as much as possible about uh, you. you. Yeah. So it'd be like hurt and angry and um, frustrated. Um, and I needed, uh, I needed presence and attention and to feel like I mattered to you. Um, so my request is when I, when I talk to you, if there's emotional charge behind it, would you like either tell me, Hey, I don't have space for this right now. Here's when I do. Um, like let's talk in 10 minutes or can you stop what you're doing and listen to me? So like, it's such a different form of communication. Totally. Could you, mm -hmm. could you say the four principles again, just because observation, feeling, need, request. And, you know, again, when we talk about social technologies, mm -hmm. um, what's what's the the author of NVC? Marshall Rosenberg. Marshall Rosenberg. If you go on YouTube and you just search Marshall Rosenberg, he has open sourced one of his complete NVC trainings and what? you can watch the videos. So cool. And I remember having that experience when I was watching it and I was like, wow, this is so practical mm -hmm. and 
every single time I have the wherewithal to practice it, whether it's with my partner or co-founder, it's unbelievable when you get out of kind of like your judgments and perceptions and start talking about what is actually happening in observable reality. Mm -hmm. You start owning your own experience, what you need versus making assumptions, judgments, and other things about somebody else, how much more effective you are at communicating, getting what you want, moving through conflict. It's, it's really powerful. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you talked about MVC and then that led you to, um, right. So I would, I would, uh, we would take, um, practices and theories that inspired us and just start creating games out of them. Uh, there's games now out of, um, internal family systems, IFS. That's like a big one I've loved playing with. Um, and out of NVC. And so it was like, I was inventing and, and some of the stuff, my community members were inventing some of these things. I was meeting other community leaders that were also like, oh, we need more, you know, we're, we're just making up our own shit. Um, and so I took, I started taking those games and just putting them into a manual, into a more expanded version so that we could all have more of those. And, and that kind of, and then, you know, there were members of my community that were like, you know, there was a Houston and Austin community now um, of authentic relating and people were like, we want to meet, know each other. And so it was like, okay, let's create the first authentic relating retreat. And mm -hmm. so we made that. And then after that, people were like, well, we want to like help lead this and we want to know how that works. And so my co-facilitator, Sarah and I were like, okay, we can like mock up a, just like a training and try to figure out how we would teach people to lead. Mm -hmm. And that was the first facilitation training. And so it was like at every step, it was like, oh, we're in this new field. Um, and, and people are asking for different things. And um, I didn't ever plan on like making it a life's work or anything. I thought I'd be like a writer or a researcher or something. That's what I was into. Um, but it was so much fun having this playground, both for me of communication, which is something that I never really learned. Um, I grew up very awkward and introverted and like completely without a sense of social skills. Mm. Um, it just wasn't part of my life. I lived out in the suburbs, 45 minutes from anything. My parents didn't have friends. I read on average about 10 books uh, a week, mm. at least. I taught myself to speed read when I was like six. Yeah. Um, so books were my life. And so it was like, oh, there's there's modes for communication. People are super into this. And and like, how do we teach it? How do we transmit it? Like, what does it look like? And And that's also where I got fascinated with community because both in living communities and in the communities that were growing up around these communication skills, I was finding that just as much as people wanted the games as tools to use outside, yeah. they also wanted a place to come where they felt like they could find connection as adults. And I realized like how little there is of that, like school sandwiches you together. But as an adult, it's like, you know, maybe you get to go out to house of yes or something as an event. But even if you go there, like, do you know how to talk to people? Do you know how to make friends? Like, you know, are you going to integrate in? Is it going to be your place? Or are you just going to like hop around from, from activity to activity, going to yoga classes where you don't talk to anyone totally. and showing up at work and like connecting maybe with your colleagues, but maybe not. There was yeah. a real, I started getting a real sense of how much isolation a lot of people were in. And you know, what's I think is so fascinating. And one of the reasons why I love having you on the show is that I think that, when I look back into my years coming of age where I struggled with kind of social presence and confidence in these things, a lot of the books that seemed to be very popular 
were focused on these kind of like techniques and tricks to appear a certain way yeah. of to say this thing to influence people or you know worse kind of like the pickup artist movement of like here's how to literally like manipulate people mm -hmm. into wanting to be with you and to like you and that so much of my own experience through gestalt and especially with these practices and you know i've sat in circling groups now is that these are technologies it's this is an operating system to just be yourself literally it's like when we talk about authentic relating the whole practice is basically how can we point our attention onto what is real for us in the moment and just get out of the way and share that and so when you talk about going to house of yes it's not like the the mind is not focused on like what what do i need to say what do i want but just like what's there right right yeah which is so powerful to give people just a little bit of the the technology to do that yeah yeah it's it's like it becomes a virtuous cycle like playing the games builds the confidence to talk to people building the confidence to talk to people makes it more likely that you're just going to go and start a conversation with them people end up being way more open most of the time than i expect and then the underlying skills in the games like looking for what like genuine curiosity like reflecting what i see in somebody else um, sharing my own experience all of those lead to like a deeper connection like i was at house of yes last night and um i was feeling kind of awkward and um didn't want to drink it away and was like i really just want to like you know meet somebody um and my partner stepped out for a while and i saw somebody laying down on the couch and i was like what if i just like went up and talked to them and like if they don't want to talk to me they'll just be like hey fuck off probably in a nicer way i don't know i wasn't familiar with house, house of yes, yes. culture yeah, <laughs> that might that might be it nope <laughs> house of nope <laughs> um and so i went up and started talking to this guy that was laying down on the couch and um and he was friendly and i noticed uh i forget there was something he said but i just noticed that he was really he was talking about like what he was into and it was like oh you're really connected with purpose huh and he was like yeah and like you know started talking about it and then you know i shared some with him about you know my purpose and my interest in communities and then he built off of that and um and you know throughout i'm sharing like you know what i'm feeling like oh i'm excited or oh i'm like really touched when you talk about that and in in sharing like some of my own emotional experience other people tend to i find feel feel their own more or connect to it a little bit and then we have the kind of this base level visceral connection as well as the connection of what are we into what are we excited about um what do we care about um, and, and for me, even though a lot of those tools are still cognitive, like even though I'm in, in conversation, like I'm still kind of thinking about like, Maybe okay, what's the next step? Like I'm, it's still, you know, I never learned it intuitively and I'm still coming to that. Now it's like, I can feel the, the back and forth flow of connection. And it turned out he was one of like, you know, the top fire performance organizers in the mm -hmm. city. And I love fire spinning and, and, you know, we're probably going to hang out tomorrow or the next night. It was just this really cool like oh okay you know people aren't as scary as i think they are mm. um and there's almost always some gem of connection and if someone doesn't want to relate it'll be obvious pretty quickly like you know their their body will be turned away slightly um or like you know they won't be answering my questions and even then i can just ask like hey it seems like you're not super into this conversation um I'm wondering if there's something else that's drawing your attention because I can go do something else. And then the person will either be like, oh shit, 
somebody's talking to me, right? I could pay attention there. Or they'll be like, yeah, actually I'm not. I can't tell you that that specific statement of when you have a feeling that someone is not reciprocating and to actually vocalize it, the words that I've started to use of like, you know, I'm not really feeling your presence in this conversation. And then also saying, and that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. And just let me know because I'll go somewhere else. You know what I mean? If you can't do it. And that there was a, one of my partner, Mickey's best Mm -hmm. friends who I always had this kind of like low grade tension with of just like when I was really excited to connect with him because he'd been in her life for so long. Um, And I remember that we sat down and we got to dinner once and we were both there early, probably like 15 minutes early. We were sitting there and I was asking questions and I had that exact experience of, I genuinely find this guy interesting and I was asking questions and he was just kind of brushing him off. And I was just like, you know what? And I remember vocalizing that and I was like, Zach, you know, I feel like I'm asking questions and you're not really interested in answering them. And I was like, and that's, and I really want to say that that's totally fine and that I respect you. I'd like to know you, but if you're not reciprocating, I'm probably going to stop asking mm-hmm. just because it's, it's not really fun for me. And that was the the transformation in our relationship. And so where that one worked out in the way that I probably had hoped, it was nice But then also what I think about there is that if I had offered that into a conversation, whether that's momentary or in a deeper relationship, if someone comes back to you and they're like, oh, I'm just like, I don't have space for it right now, then you get to move on. And like, why do you want to waste your time with someone who's actually not interested in facilitating a relationship? You know what I mean? Then you get to consciously in observable reality say, okay, this person and I are not going to be connected and I'm going to go and spend my energy and time elsewhere where it's going to be more conducive with real connection. Yeah. And I think what you're pointing to there is beautiful because to me at the core of authentic relating and other communication practices is this revealing of the unspoken. Yeah. And it could be revealing the unspoken in myself. Like, Hey, I'm like soup. Like if someone asks me how I am, which is, you know, totally just a way of Americans saying hello. It's like, hey, how are you? They don't really want to know the answer. <laughs> One thing I love asking then is like, do you actually want to know the answer or is this like a hello? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, but I can I can reveal a little more of like, you know, I'm actually kind of like nervous to be at this party. Yeah. Um, or if I'm in conversation and I notice that I'm like, you know, kind of I'm turning away, I can be like, hey, I, you know, I actually... Like I'm loving talking to you, but I actually really want to, um, I'm like drawn over there to this friend I haven't seen in a while. So it's like, I'm speaking, I'm speaking the unspoken truth and I can ask that of other people as well. Like I can notice things in them. And sometimes that's in terms of appreciation, like noticing, um, you know, that, that like you're making eye contact or like the quality of your questions or your presence. Um, and sometimes it's noticing a lack of attention or noticing, for me, often it comes if, if someone's in conversation and their their tone becomes like a little bit edged, mm. a little sharp, I can be like, I'm curious actually if you're frustrated right now. Mm. Because like the whole conversation will become about that edge. That's, it, it's like it's coloring everything. And usually everyone's getting more and more tense and nobody can speak to it because we don't know how to say the thing of like, hey, there's, there's an elephant. So uh-huh. you know, there's an elephant, but I can't poke it because you might get more mad. And what actually happens is like, when those things get poked, usually the intensity in the conversation rises. Yeah, And we're scared of that. We're like scared of saying the socially unacceptable thing, having a bunch of energy come up and then not being able to hold it. Yeah, And there's, there's actually a practice of learning to hold that increased energy in conversation. But what I've almost always found is like, 
I'll say something like, hey, you seem frustrated right now. The other person will be like, either will be like, no, I'm not frustrated. Or <laughs> yeah, I fucking am frustrated. Sorry, is it okay to curse on this? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're good, you're okay. good, yeah. Um, and, and the energy in the conversation will go up and everyone will get kind of like freaked out for a moment and then it will fade. Mm. Because it's like, that's that's like the, it's like potential energy has been building up. It turns into kinetic energy as it gets released. And then like all of a sudden the conversation is on a more even keel and we can talk about what's happening. But my current hypothesis is that people's fear of not being able to hold the energy of, of like speaking to the unspoken is why we don't do it. Mm. Um, and I think we're a lot more resilient than we think we are. But that's like, it's like you have to jump off that cliff and it's going to be awkward at first because most people, when they start jumping off that cliff, they do it in a way that the other person feels shamed. It's really hard to get that that language clean and not just be like, you're frustrated or like, I know you're angry right now. And see, there's like a a pointedness in that where the other person wants to defend because it's coming at them. It's speaking to something that they don't want to be seen because it's very vulnerable to be seen in something we don't know we're showing. Yeah. And so it has to be like an invitation like, "Oh, you seem angry right now. Would you tell me more about that?" Yeah, or just are you? Are you, you are yeah. you angry right now? Yeah. But even the tone of that, yeah, like totally. it can't be, "Are you angry right now?" It's totally. like, "Are you angry right now?" It's yeah. like an invitation. Um so how do you yeah. how do you prepare people for that? Cuz it, it's again, I think that what we're touching on right here is really the essence of it of mm-hmm is this assumption that people cannot hold you talk about it as that energy of the unspoken truth of and what i think the power of of giving yourself to some of these practices like circling or authentic relating or you know a process group in gestalt is that when you start to articulate all of these unspoken truths when you start to release them in your day-to-day life at least my own experience is that you start to become aware of how much you're holding back yeah it's because most people just exist with this tension of holding on to so much. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I can't say how I'm actually feeling or what I want to know because they can't hold it or that's not appropriate. Right. And so if that's kind of the resistance that people have of like, how do you get people to a place of, of actually taking that leap, as you said, of actually giving a voice to the unspoken truth? I'm just going to repeat that because my brain checked out for a second. Um, how do I get people to a place of how speaking do you the get, unspoken how truth? How do you get people to that place of actually taking the the jump? You know what I mean? Of yeah. like why? Of And I think some of it would be if there are practical techniques yeah. in terms of like how to do that, but also why is that so important to yeah. do that? Yeah. Um, the games, really. Yeah. That's what I love about them because they they make saying hard things easier. Um a real simple one is just like, if there's a conversation where I'm having trouble figuring out what I want to say or I notice myself holding back, I can just be like, is it okay with you if I just like take a soliloquy space? Like, can I just set a timer for three minutes and and talk? And like, I'm an external processor. It's going to be messy. Like, but I can't figure out what's going on for me until I have space to say it. So like, is that cool with you? Like, mm-hmm. can I talk and can you agree to like not, like take any of it as truth until I finish and like say the thing I want to say. So that's a super simple way to do it. And usually good to then give the other person that space as well if they want it. Um, but also, you know, I was, I was hanging out. I had these two friends uh, at one point, still friends of mine. Um, 
for like five or six years now. And I was having, having like uh, dinner with them. Um, it was like, we'd, we'd become really close friends. I would have dinner with them. We would even like have like, you know, snuggle sleepovers. Um, I'm in dance community. So there's like tons of touch. It's just like normalized. <laughs> sure, yeah. um, and you know, this was like every, every week for like almost a year. And there was this weird like feeling between us of like tension being built up and like none of us was spoke, was speaking it. And I was like, there's something going on here. I don't totally know what it is. So we're having dinner one night. Um, and this has literally been going on for a year. Yeah. Um, and I was like, let's play a game. Um, and they were like, yeah, sure. I was like, okay, let's do a sentence stems game, which is one of my favorite social ones to do. Yeah. Where one person suggests a, a sentence stem or a question to answer. Everybody answers it. And then someone else suggests one and you just get this instant depth and in conversation. What are some of your favorite sentence stems? Um, if you really knew me, you would know. Uh, in that case, the one I used was the elephant in the room is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what are some other ones I'm I'm really fucking good at? Hmm. Uh I love the thing I'm not saying is yeah um I played this with my family once and my brother really didn't want to play and the sentence time he introduced was who would win in a fight Hulk or the or Spider-Man it's <laughs> like it's not not really what I was going for but th that sure. I guess that can be a sentence to yeah. um yeah I have a, a list of a ton of them in the games manual I cool. think and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes so for Sweet. anybody who want to find it yeah um so what happened with your friends so yeah, I gave the sentence stem, the elephant in the room is, and you know, what it turned out was that we were all attracted to each other. <laughs> and yeah. So I was like, oh, that's what that energy was. Okay. And it was great because we didn't have to do anything with it. But once it was spoken, it had somewhere to go. And I think that's a lot of the time what happens is like whatever doesn't have a channel tends to build up. Mm. So it's not like, um, it's not like oftentimes there's something that's inherently like taboo or not okay in a connection, it's just there's something that like doesn't have a place to go and there's no place to speak it. And so the energy starts getting held. It's like if I'm frustrated, but I don't feel like it's okay to be frustrated, I'm going to yeah. get increasingly frustrated. But if someone asks me, hey, are you frustrated? Then I can be like, yes, I am and say something about it. And then it clears. Yeah. A lot of the time in couples, I notice so much of what seems to cause um, arguments between them is one person feeling like they haven't been heard like mm -hmm. there's this constant refrain of you're not hearing me yeah. and the other person's like yes i am i'm hearing you but there's some some way that the particular frequency the person wants to hear on hasn't been heard sure and the best thing you can do in that sort of connection is to stop and go okay like can you tell me what you want to be heard on listen to it and then reflect it um, or like try to find the channel or frequency they want to be listened to on. And sometimes it's not the kind of gentle reflecting. Sometimes it's like they want to be heard in the level of intensity that they have. And unless you come back at them with that same type of intensity, they're not going to feel heard. So there's like a kind of a gross level and a subtle level of of understanding. Yeah. I mean, that simple practice has been one of the most transformative things in in my relationship with Mickey is just that simple idea that and and I recommend this to so many of the the couples and the guys that I work with is that when you are in a especially a disagreement or an argument or a fight is that to just welcome that you know that stuff is natural is you're going to disagree you're going to see things different ways and if we're really ready to move forward if we're talking about moving past an argument a disagreement whatever it is that the first and really kind of like the first step is always the other person saying, here's what my perspective is. Here's what happened for me. 
they can make any sort of judgment about the other person, whatever it is. And the other person has to say, here's what I hear you saying. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And until you're able to repeat back the other person's perspective, series of events, whatever it is, to their satisfaction, they haven't been heard. And until they give you that affirmation that like, yes, that's it. Because until they feel like they have been heard, there's just no room for progress. If you are making a new sort of arrangement or agreement or compromise from a place of one of the parties not being heard, mm -hmm. then there's going to be resentment for not having been. So it has to, it has to start on that foundational kind of like place of being heard. And then once one party gives that to the other, then the other one gets to give it back to the other. And until you're at that place of both people being heard, which can be challenging and take time, um, it's only from that place that you can basically say, it's like, okay, if we need to make a new arrangement of here's how we do things differently moving forward, or here's what I need in, uh, you know, next time, but it has to come on that place of understanding. Yeah, very much so. And kind of the, the then next step to that that we've been talking about a little bit is like hearing also like the value or the concern underlying what they're saying. So that's like the elephant is like, okay, I hear you. And I think I'm also hearing, and you can interpret a little bit. Like, totally. I think I'm also hearing that like, this really matters to you. Like, this isn't just like a throwaway, you know, argument that we're having. This is like actually really core to your being. Like, you really want me to understand you. Yeah. And the person's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> it's like, you know, hear, hearing and listening are two different things. Mm. Go say more there. Um, you can hear someone and just like be present with them and be like passively taking in the information of what they're saying and parroting it back. Yeah. Um. But listening is like really trying to, to get somebody, trying to like figure out um, what is actually happening underneath for them. And um, there's a particular form of love in that, I think. Like it takes more attention to listen than it does to hear. Mm. But there's a natural, like people often like feel like like um, repeating back is is forced or is boring and is if you're just hearing. Because yeah. all you're doing is letting information passively washing, wash over you and parrot it back. And then the other person gets value maybe from hearing their words. But you don't really, but I like as the as the person reflecting, it's like I'm not getting a lot from saying it back to you unless I'm listening. Because mm. if I'm listening, I'm actually taking in the impact of like, here's a person, there's something going on for them. It matters to them. What do I think is going on for them? Why would it matter to them? That's such a big one right there. I think what you just said is, because I, I even, you know, we, when we do this practice, sometimes it can feel a little like rote. Like mm -hmm. we are repeating back words that were just said and we're not actually there. But what you just said is, I think taking it a step further of saying, here's what I heard you said. And I get that it matters to you because, you know, X, mm -hmm. if you have that Y of like, why what they're saying matters to them. And you can even add your own understanding of why what they're saying and what they need is important to them that it really does take it a step deeper from yeah. hearing to listening. And there is, yeah. Yeah, and one of the phrases I love for that is like, and that makes sense to me because mm. it's like, oh, you know, whatever you said, like, oh, you're frustrated because, you know, I didn't take out the trash. And that makes sense to me because, you know, you really love the house being clean. And it, you know, I know that you get a lot less stressed when the house is clean. So like, I could totally imagine why me not taking out the trash would have bugged you. Yeah. And it's, that's a completely different conversation. Yeah. 
And so, you know, when you've talked about this example with your friends, so what ended up happening after the acknowledgement of the shared attraction? Uh, <laughs> <They, yeah. laughs> Threesome? <laughs> ended positively. Um, yeah, it, it ended positively, but, but the cool thing about it was like, it was a year of that tension building up. Yeah. Um, it ended like we we did end up like having like a romantic sexual interaction with each other and then that never happened again yeah like there and but it wasn't awkward anymore and it was like we'd been feeling something real in not wanting to speak to it which is that like for different reasons like you know it wasn't a hell yes to have that interaction to or ha- like have an ongoing relationship between us that was more than just friendship um but it but it's like the energy was was built up from not being spoken and then when it was it was like there was more freedom in our relationship to enter into that space or not yeah um and it turned out to be not where we wanted to go and like i still came over for dinners and and sleepovers and hangouts um it was a lovely reminder to me that the thing that i'm like i was scared of speaking to that energy because i didn't know what i would do with it Totally. I was like, there's going to be a lot of intensity released. I don't have a next step. Like, I don't know what I want here. Totally. Like, yes, I'm attracted, but like, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't know how to deal with dating a couple. And these are really good friends of mine. I don't want to fuck up the friendship. And like, what am I going to do with this? And the not knowing was keeping any of us from, from saying what was there. Um, And then energy was released. And then like on the other side of it, it was okay. And so having that constant reminder that I'm alive on the other side of a conversation has really been the thing I'd say that's most transformed my social interactions because it used to be so scary to enter into something I didn't know. And in human connection, like it's always going to be messy. There's always going to be unknowns. It's just too complex. Like I can use nonviolent communication all day, but it's, it's not going to work with my parents the same way it works with my partner or my friends, you know, it's going to get messy. There's going to be unknowns. And it's just like, there's nothing that's going to solve human relating. Mm. It's just a matter of like being able to listen to what's there and being able to hold what comes up. And I think that that's such a, an important point there is when we talk about the unknown, but we tell ourselves that it's not an unknown subconsciously, right? Because we have a story of, if I do this, this will happen. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes the reality that we start living into is the one that's based off of some story. If I can't tell these people this because then it will get uncomfortable and we won't be able to hang out anymore, like whatever that will be. I can't tell my dad that I want him to say I love you because it'll make him too uncomfortable. I can't talk to my partner about this thing from two years ago that I'm still kind of sad about because I don't want to take them back into the dark, like whatever it is and because we have these stories. And so when we talk about, I think what's so important is developing this commitment internally to how you want to operate and communicate because it's important to you because you can know that you can know what's important to you as an individual and the less time that we spend, I think, basing our actions off of stories of what we think is going to happen in the future and just come back to again of, well, I know how I'd like to be, mm-hmm. which is for most people themselves uh, to be able to share myself and to do that in moments. And the more that we just realize that like, that is something that you can know and to stop making up stories about the, the unknowns and telling ourselves that we think we know what's going to happen is a, a complete transformation yeah. for most people right 
I'll give you a, a story of, of like this last year. Um, what's happened, one thing that's happened for me is uh, I realized like about a year and a half ago that I wasn't really happy. Like mm. I was content. I, I love what I do. Um, I was living in a good house with friends. Um, I had a partnership that was like, uh, we weren't really aligned in what we wanted with each other, but we loved each other so much. Mm. Um, and, and it was like, okay, things are good, but they're not, I'm not like really happy and I don't feel like inspired. I'm like searching for what to do in my job and I'm, I'm not really like fully drawn to something and I'm like not really enjoying coming home because I'm like living out you know, an hour from, from town, or it wasn't an hour, it was like 15 minutes from, from Austin, but like I couldn't bike into town, which I love doing. And yeah. um, it wasn't a great, a, like great house physically. Um, I was like, I feel like I'm, I'm having a really hard time making decisions. And I wonder if it's because I'm doing a lot of like, hell maybe, like, which has become one of my favorite phrases. Like it's good enough. And and I was doing it because like there wasn't anything that was a yes. Like it's not like there was a partner waiting in the wings that did want the same form as me or, you know, a house that that would have given like that was close to town and mm. beautiful and in like had my friends in it and wasn't within my price range. It was like there was there was nothing it was like either hell maybe or nothing. And um I got a coach explicitly to market a, a to help me market a program that I um, had created that I thought was like one of the best things that I had made. And I was like, oh, this can translate authentic relating to the mainstream, which mm. it, it actually has been somewhat successful. And I was like, you know, can you marketing coach me? And he ended up like actually like really encouraging me or like helping hold me in this space of, of like just jump into the unknown. Like what is, what is so uncomfortable with like sitting with that void and so I started just instead of, I started just saying no to everything that was a maybe. And I ended up homeless for four months, couch surfing. I ended up uh, without a partner um, and, you know, sending the email that, that, that I think you got about Authentic Revolution where I was like, I'm discontinuing my main programs in my company and like not going to have income and going to like put all of this down to figure out what is a hell yes. Mm. Like, this is great. This is founding communities. Like so many people are being touched by my work, but it's not, it's still not getting to all the areas of society that I want to touch. And mm. it's still not having quite the impact that I want. And like, it's growing linearly, but not exponentially. And, and it was like, you know, there were nights where I didn't know where I was going to sleep. And I didn't know if I was going to, you know, bring in, bring in anything for the month or like if, or be able to pay my employees, um, it was really intense. And then like from that place of openness, I, I, I got reminded by someone that like, you know, if, if the space is filled, there's no space for new things to come in. So actually clearing everything out can be an invitation, but I have to be able to sit with the discomfort of the unknown. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a person of, of routine and habit and it's not a space that I like to be in. Um, and that kind of open space and just going off of, of like intuition and following little threads led me to now, you know, having a home that I absolutely love where I'm like minutes from, from the city I can bike in. I live with 
a friend that I've known for like seven years was one of the first authentic relating facilitators. Mm. Um, and gorgeous space. Uh, I'm in a partnership that I feel really aligned with. Um, and even though a lot of what I'm doing in work still feels up in the air, there's a way that like, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like inspired about it in ways that like, I can't explain by like the bottom line of what I'm making. Like it's, you know, I'm making the same as I did before, but I'm doing different stuff and I'm waking up every day just feeling like, oh, this is, I don't know what I'm following, but it feels right. Yeah. And as long as I'm going with that, it feels right. It's just like a different paradigm of, of listening to what's present instead of what's planned. Yeah. Ooh, what's present versus what's planned. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I love my, my coach, Lauren Zander talks about the idea of how we oftentimes just want things. We want more impact. We want more money. We want that partnership because of how we think it will make us feel. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like when I'm in that partnership, I will feel loved. When I have that amount of money, I will feel secure. And that idea of starting with the feeling first of like, well, wait a second, if I want to feel loved, what do I do that makes me feel loved? If I want to feel secure, what do I baseline need to feel secure? And then right. when you say, okay, what do I need to do to have that feeling? Whereas now you're existing in a place where you feel the way that you actually want to feel. And then it just transforms your idea of delaying gratification of delaying that feeling for some kind of subjective point in the future and it allows you to create it in the moment. And then when you're coming from that place, like that energy is just magnetic, right? Mm -hmm. I like people wanting to work with you, of you having the energy to do the things that are most important that ultimately, you know, I would predict are gonna be what, you know, scale the bottom line and the community most powerfully. Right, or make it, you know, not matter as much. It, it's, I want to go on a philosophical rabbit hole of how many val different value systems we can come from. But I think the core of it is just like, um, I can choose, uh, what framework I interpret success in or happiness in. Yeah. Um, and that combination of like choosing of like going on feeling and choosing the system of, of success. Um, like another example of that, um, just slightly off topic, but this, um, I produced this conference recently called The Living Room that I'm doing again in March and I was bringing together people that are that are at the intersection of consciousness and the mainstream, basically, that are working on consciousness or connection-related work but are also trying to apply it um, to areas that are very much, you know, like schools, businesses, you know, addiction recovery programs, um, uh, data security, whatever. Um, and it took nine months to put this conference together. Like it was one of the most involved programs I'd ever done mm. and it happened and it was, there was 40 people that came and I had 20 staff um, as well. And, and it was amazing people. Like some of the people I look up to most in the world showed up to this mm. and they just had these great connections, but it finished and I was like, was that worth it? Like, you know, I spent so much of my, of my time on that and it wasn't supposed to make money, but like did people like, get enough out of it for mm. it to have been worth that much time and energy. And um, I was talking with one of my friends about it. I was really like actually depressed for a couple of weeks afterwards. Um, I had like a post project partum. That's mm. what I call it now. <laughs> totally. um, but also because I didn't know whether or not it had been a success. I talked to one of my friends and he was like, well, what, you know, what frame are you seeing success in? 
like, why did you, why did you do it? Um, and I was like, and, and why did you structure it the way you did? And I was like, oh, I guess it was, you know, for impact. But then I was like, but it was also kind of an art project. Totally. Um, and what's the difference to you? Um, there's, there's impact for impact's sake and then there's beauty for beauty's sake. Mm. And impact can be beautiful and beauty can be impactful. And those two value systems seem to weave in and out of each other where like I can enjoy something just because enjoyment feels good um, or I can enjoy something because I know that like an hour from now that enjoyment is going to lead me to do better work. Mm. But if I'm only ever operating in one of those systems, yeah. it feels like something's missing from life. And I was I was operating on a, on a system in that moment of like, did this have the impact that I wanted? Not did people feel good going to it and yeah. did I feel like I created my vision and like all the, you know, crazy shit that I wanted to do, like, you know, having people welcomed by having like a door in the middle of nowhere and all the staff are in giant bird masks and not talking and like up in trees and stuff. Like it was, <laughs> I did a lot of like kind of eyes wide shut style, like, <laughs> like let's break people out of their frames and comfort zones. And that, that was art in a lot of ways. And yeah. the connection that people created was art and it wasn't just physical art. It was like, it reminded me that I can't, quantify the impact that gets made on people's souls mm. like i can't see that directly and so it's really become this practice for me of like if i'm going around the world not following my intuitions you know i was i was at this party at house of yes last night and i had eyeliner with me and i was like what if i just started drawing on people with it mm. like and then like i had a line of people that all wanted to be drawn on it was like decreasing that line between who I think I'm supposed to be and who I can be in a space. Um, it was like, oh, I never know the impact I'm going to have on people in an artistic sense. So if I'm as much of myself as possible in as many places as possible, and if I define it not only by the impact that I see directly and hear about, but also imagining all the impact that I could be having, yeah, it just brings me a lot more joy and it redefines my, my definition of success. I love that. So do you feel successful? Um, in many different ways, yes. Mm. And I feel successful when like I cook a meal for friends and they enjoy it Yeah, as much as building a network of communities across the globe. Totally. And I'm still like completely aware of how much more I want to do. Well, so that's, and that's one thing, you know, we're getting towards an hour now and I want to mm -hmm. respect our time that we had, but also, you know, before we got onto... Uh, the pod we were talking about kind of some of the plans for scale and how to bring mm -hmm. some of these social technologies into different containers whether that's school whether that's working with at-risk communities and so what i'm curious about is that for people who are listening who are in positions of leadership whether that's in a, a company whether they're leading communities or running a company you know how do people start to integrate some of these practices into you know their places of work into you know their own communities what would be your your advice for how people can start to take some of these social technologies and these frameworks that allow people to really kind of bring all of themselves into those places what, where would you have them start um there's a bunch of different resources uh that i can recommend um i mean at a basic level just like some of the tools that we talked about on this podcast like try saying the thing that scares you and then checking for impact. Mm. Like, 
you know, go to work tomorrow. And if there's been, you know, an ongoing tension with a coworker or something, go up to them and say, Hey, can I have a conversation with you? Um, there's this thing that's been difficult for me. How is it for you to hear that? Um, and, and, you know, get consent to have the conversation first. So one thing is just like people like go out and be, you know, a little more honest or next time someone talks to you, try listening instead of hearing. Hmm. So that's kind of step one. Um, in terms of specific resources, um, I have a website, authrev.org, A-U-T-H-R-E-V. And on there, there's uh, a games manual that has more than 150 games. There's an online course called the Authentic uh, Life Course. And that's an online video course that includes a bunch of assignments on how to translate these tools into daily life. So like as well as kind of playing the games. It's like, how do you make requests? How do you set boundaries? How do you notice what you need? How do you get curious about other people? Like these are skills. Um, there's an online community of practice called Connect off that site as well, where you can practice this, the tools live. And there's also a map of communities across the world. Um, and there should be links to stuff like a, a workplace connection manual uh, that's specific to workplaces. And then I have a, a consulting company that, that I work uh, that I've created, I guess that helps businesses integrate this. And what's the, well. what's the benefit of instilling these types of frameworks in specifically like a corporate culture? Oh man. Um, a lot. I've been, where do I even start with that? One sec. So, the way I see that is like business, so business has different constraints than relationship and community because you have to deal with hierarchy and time pressure, mm. um, which sometimes exist in, in other situations as well, but it's different in business. Um, so when things start getting going fast, we tend to lose the relational aspect. It becomes about what are we, like what's the work, what needs to get done. Mm. And there's a lot of little tensions that start to build up between people, a lot of which can be ignored, especially if the business has a really good mission. But um, they make work harder, they slow things down because you have to get past your feelings about someone before you can work with them. Hmm. And there starts to be this kind of frustration that gets built up or lack of understanding or like, you know, that person never responds to your emails and then you stop emailing them about the things that you need to, you stop enjoying coming to work as much, you feel like you can't bring yourself. And um, tools like authentic relating and even just taking time at the start of a meeting to check in, like, okay, everyone gets, you know, one minute to speak to how they're doing or to name a rosebud thorn. This is one of the practices in the little mini, mini manual for uh, workplace connection. Yeah. Rose is something that's going well in your life. Um, bud is something that's new but exciting and a thorn is something you're struggling with. So I'll have, you know, managers do that practice and people are like, oh, that's why you've been cranky. Like, oh, now I get it. It's like, we don't have this context on other people. Like, why don't they respond to emails? What's the best way to work with them? How do they receive feedback well? You know, there's there's this knowledge, this kind of user manual, um, that when I know that about someone I'm working with, I can work with them so much better. When I start working with a team, um, when I do my trainings, the first thing I'll check in on is like, you know, what are your what are your superpowers? Like, what are you really good at that we can rely on you for? Um, and what are your kryptonites? Like, what are the places where like you're gonna struggle and you might even pretend you're not doing so, but like that we can support you and what helps you thrive? Like, what do you need to do your best job? And we figure all that out at the start. Yeah. 
and it makes the weekend so much smoother. Yeah. Because, you know, when my co-facilitator is like getting like frustrated and like resentful in front of the room and I can see everybody starting to get like all worried because he's like, you know, being a dick. <laughs> Sorry, that's a terrible phrase. Um, he's, you know, getting getting frustrated at people and responding like sharply. Yeah, It's like I've had a conversation up front about, you know, when you get in a sharp mood, like what do I do? Like do I confront you directly or do I, you know, wait until afterwards and say something to you? Or do I take over? Or do I, it's like people need different types of responses. And until we have conversations about, you know, that relational space, we're going to trigger each other all the time. And you can cut out a lot of, of issues by just knowing how to have those conversations, knowing how to clear conflicts, knowing how to set yourself up for success with someone by knowing their habits and patterns. Um and knowing how to like bring yourself and feel safe in situations and talk when you don't. There's a great, uh, I'll just give one piece of data. There's a great study um, by Google called Project Aristotle. Mm. They looked at teams across their organization, more than 180 teams, to find out like what made some teams perform better than others. And what they found wasn't like, the most important factors weren't demographics, wasn't how long people had been there, their degree of expertise, any of that. It was two things. One, social sensitivity how much people read and were aware of each other's emotional expressions. Wow. So like if we were in a meeting and one person said something and someone else crossed their arms and leaned back, was that noticed? Did someone ask like, hey, you seem you seem like you had a reaction there. Like, do you have something to say? Um, it doesn't always have to be like verbal, but like we, if we notice those things in each other and we're not responding to them, teams perform worse. And the other one was turn-taking. So did everyone have a relatively equal amount of time to speak? Hmm. And what those add up to is something called psychological safety, which is do I feel safe to show up as myself and know that it's going to be noticed and cared about? And though that safety can go away when things get fast and it can go away um, when people in the company have different levels of emotional awareness. Um, and, you know, that's normal. There's actually like a higher degree of, of Asperger's among founders and CEOs than among the general population. I think there are things that are really adaptive about that personality, actually. Like mm. if you're constantly empathizing and caring about everybody, it's actually harder to get work done. Mm. Um, and it's especially important to like know when to empathize and sure. when to care because otherwise people start leaving. Yeah. Well, like you just talked about it, like for so many of these companies, they have technologies to optimize every aspect of their business. But in terms of our ability to create a space where people can truly thrive, it's like you're coming in with that technology. And, yeah. like, and I feel like for so many people, there's the fear of like, well, let's do this. Well, if everyone has to talk about how they're feeling, we're never going to get anything done. We're not going to know how to do it. And the whole point is that's because your perception of those conversations exists within a context of you not knowing how to have those conversations. Totally. And so it's like your idea that if everyone's talking about how they're feeling, like we're not going to be able to get anything done. There's just going to be more low-level tension as opposed to the idea that, no, there's an actual framework to go through here observe what you're feeling, make a request, here's what I need to actually be heard, to actually make tangible requests. And that when you start to invite in this kind of authenticity within a container where tools are available and someone actually understands those things. And so I think that that's the real call for people who are managing people, who are leading communities, is that you know when you take a step to understand these things, and I think this is kind of going to a place where I, I really think is like a powerful way to, to close it, is... 
that these techniques, authentic relating, and you you live this so beautifully, you know, through your servant leadership, is that it is not just about being yourself in the world. It's like this is the way to create spaces where others can open up and flourish into themselves. And it's like by practicing these yourself, it is not just a way to get into a place where you are more expressed, where you feel more confident, um, but you really are creating the playing field. You're creating the space and the possibility for other people to meet you there. And I think that that's, that's been one of the biggest kind of reframes in terms of how we work with men and how we, you know, interact in our men's group. It's that, you know, anytime you speak to the unspoken truth, anytime you say the thing that you're scared to say within the context that you are also creating space for others to do that, that you want other people to be able to do that for themselves. Um, I think that it oftentimes liberates people to have more confidence to kind of like shift their, their ways of being because they understand that it, it really can be of service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's like with great power comes great responsibility. It's communication and knowing how to do it is a gift mm. and it requires energy. And there's a reason I think we don't want to do it all the time, but like the example of, uh, the image that came to mind when you're talking about the workplace is it's almost like we construct these dams in our communication and in our lives and all sorts of like silt and detritus and, and rocks and water build up behind those dams. And it starts feeling harder and harder to take the dam down because it feels like everything's just going to come through and everything's going to be coming through all the time. And we're not going to have any filter to it. And we're not going to have any way of dealing with that rush of water. Um, and it's why it's helpful to have a context like a game or a facilitator to help like meter out that water. Like the games just basically say, we're going to open one piece of this. Totally. Um, we're going to let a little bit out. But when you've created a context where you just don't even have the dam, mm. it's not like you're stopping work on the river. Like you're always going to be building like mini dams and working on like, where should the river go? And like, where do I need to divert it? And like, what little like cairns do I want to build in the river? But it, it becomes a conversation. It becomes play rather than being this all or nothing. Like totally. either I have a dam or I don't. That, that ability to reframe, I think is so powerful. Like when you talk about play, I'm like, do you want to play a game? Mm-hmm. It's like oftentimes um, when I'm working with some of my own consulting clients, it's like when we're working on something like a TED Talk, like right after this podcast, I'm working with a woman who's speaking at TEDx Oakland. And there can be, we put so much pressure on, oh my God, I have 15 minutes to put five years of work into words. Like, mm-hmm. how am I going to do that? Or if you're about to have a challenging conversation with your partner so much pressure that we put on this like moment. And so the idea of any time I work with someone, I was like, all right, let's like, let's just like, we're coming into the space to play. Like we're not necessarily figuring anything out. We're just going to allow ourselves to just share whatever comes up and trust that if we just do that, that the thing will emerge. But the idea of let's play is just a complete reframe of how we're experiencing these events and you know, why we're doing anything. And I think that that's what these tools that you do, create i still see that that image of the playground of like when within those boundaries there is a a level of freedom that you can create for people and like this is not ambiguous ephemeral ideas of you know being expressed and saying you know sharing your authentic voice these are just like tools these are very simple containers that you can create wherever you go whether that's painting people at some crazy nightclub with eyeliner or transforming your your company like stand up Mm -hmm. so 
it's really it's powerful work and so for people who are curious about this i've already downloaded the authentic rev games i use them they're amazing but how else can people connect with you if they want to either bring you into their company or they're curious about some of the resources and things that you have available what's the best way to keep in touch um most stuff is up on my site authrev.org and people can contact me at sarah at authrev.com i know com org whatever if you go to authrev.com you'll get to the dot org site too um and there's a ton of resources up there and i'll say that one of the things that i love doing most is working with community organizers and with people that are trying to bring connection to new areas um it's like a lot of the pro bono work i do is is just like oh hey there's a public school that like wants more connection like Mm. sweet like what do i you know what can be done there and um so especially anyone that's like community organizing or you know, building means for connection. There's a lot of resources up there for that. And it's always something I'm willing to help with. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. And I have some videos up on YouTube as well that should be linked from that site. Cool. And one of the cool things about whether it's circling, whether it's authentic revolution, authentic relating is there are communities in how many cities around the world now? At least 70 that I know of. Great. So if you're in like a major metropolitan area, almost certainly one of these exists. And so if you've ever felt like, you know, you desire deeper relationships, this is a space where you can go and do that, where you can basically be held and seen for all of yourself and create that space for others. And whether you find new relationships in those types of circles, it's also giving you the ability to build up that kind of resilience to going deep to sharing your emotional experience and practicing that so you can do that with other people that you're meeting outside of those circles so it's like one of the most practical places where i oftentimes send people who are in that stage of trying to create more meaningful relationships totally and if there's not a local one there's also the online platform connect online. where yeah. you can they, there's events every day on there to jump on um, both in american and european time zones very cool. Well, I've loved our time together. I'm so excited to see how this movement that you've built continues to uh, touch people and communities around the globe. So thank you so much for everything you've created. You were awesome. Thanks, and, Andrew. Uh, this was we fun. We will have this out soon. Bye. Signing off.